tuned to Radio BCC and this is the Six O'Clock Swill. This is the podcast so enigmatic that it seems cruel to name it. So I'll just move straight to the team presenting it. Tim Blair joining us from the Central Coast, Simon Collins from Sydney, and me, Nick Cater, hence Radio BCC. And uh, we're also joined by, we've got a producer on board, even if we, we, we're still trying to land on a title. Welcome Alec Bennett as our producer today. Later on, I think we, we've got Fred Paul joining us to discuss his, I think, quite brilliant biography of the late Bill Leak, Die Laughing. It's um, We'll talk a lot more about that with Fred when he comes on. But first of all, um, how did you see the week? I mean, how are we surviving the the era of the mask? I, I was just contemplating before how we're going to see, I think, a generation, in fact, the whole human race, I think, will evolve post-COVID into a, a race of people with much larger ears because, you know, if the mask fits and stays on your ears, you're more likely to survive. It's no, it's no accident, you know, that people like Danny Andrews, of course, have got huge ears. And what does this mean for the future of the royal family, Tim? Oh dear, there, there's certain genetic advantages in um, in being a jughead these days. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. If you're a jughead, you're basically set, aren't you? It's a it's a real bonus. And um, yeah, Dan Andrews, he's got the he's got the big ones on. Mm. Uh, Prince Charles might live to 200, which is a bit of a scary thought. Uh, with uh, with those um, handy mask holders attached to his head, he's um, he's uh, a <laughs> they're laughing last. You know, we never expected it. Uh, you know, to, to go that way. I, I don't think it's I don't think it's a done deal on the masks thing. I mean, I, I agree that there's quite a few things that will survive the lockdowns and things. But I I I take great heart. You may remember I mentioned I'm starting a new organisation. Uh, Australian masturbators and uh, yes. I mentioned it and I actually wrote about it in my column and, and there's been quite a quite a bit of interest <laughs> in it. It turns out that quite a few of my friends um, it turns out they're pretty kind of prescient because a lot of them say that they were they've been masturbators for quite a long time before COVID even came you know so yeah I think it's it speaks very well and that they can see they can see that far ahead <laughs> I put it on my uh, I put it on my dating profile already. I, I am a masturbator. Uh, if you'd like to meet a masturbator, I'm the guy for you. In which case, why do you have a dating profile? <laughs> What's the point? <laughs> like, do you send your profile to yourself? <laughs> I, I think the other reply, the other the other thing that's going to come out of this is at last we have an alternative to the mullet. Do you remember the mullet, the haircut that lived on too long? <laughs> I think we now have the Gladys. I'm sporting a Gladys, which is a mop of hair that just gets so unruly that there's no hairspray in the world. No, no, mullets are making a comeback, Nick. Mullet. Really? Mullets are super... uh... They're hot on the heels of vinyl. You know, they're coming back big time. This is alarming. Well, your mullets are back because two reasons. There was a resurgence resurgence among the young folk who enjoyed the mullets so much that several Sydney schools formally banned the mullet, which is a bit... um, a bit oppressive. This yeah. is back in the day, days when we had schools that people attended. Um, but the other thing that's driving the mullet resurgence is that no one can get to a damn hairdresser or a barber. Hmm. So um, that's I mean, right. I've got a neighbour who, that's um, right. a, a neighbour here who's um, he's got a, a full on afro, 
uh, because of his um, uh, he's more than five kilometres from his barber, and uh, man, it's it's a, it's an impressive head of hair he's got going on. I don't I don't believe this about the mullet. I think it's made up. I and mean, you're going to tell me next vinyl records are coming back into fashion. I, don't believe <laughs> it, I was if that, I was thinking the other day if if vinyl records if vinyl records do come back into fashion properly, I wonder if anybody will have the courage to open a record shop called the Vinyl Solution. They probably won't, will they? Yeah, mm. <laughs> you, this is, these are the bits that I keep considering cutting out when we get to the editing stage, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the Simon, the, hitting the Simon button, we call it. But the, but, but the mullet is, um, we've got to, you know, I think the, 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 the continuance, the survival uh, of the mullet, we could thank, it's, we could, used to be able to thank pretty much AFL for keeping it going, but now it's, it's, it's pervaded all the other, yeah. all the other codes as well. There's, there's there's league players who are proud of their mullets, and and most surprisingly, a lot of a lot of rugby union players now wear mullets. So, um, you know, like everything else, as, as HG and Roy say, this country owes footy a lot, and that's another example of it. Mate, um, one of the great champions of the mullet is um, there's an American comedian called Theo Vaughn, who's a very proud mullet wearer. But as he as he describes it, it's not a mullet; it's a unisex hairstyle. Well, they see that'll that'll ensure its survival. Think of it in that perspective, and uh, yeah, there you go. I wonder how many people. I wonder how many. I wonder how many people who transition retain a mullet through it. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, Kate, Caitlyn Jenner is wearing a Bruce Jenner hairstyle from the seventies. It's suspiciously mulletish, isn't it? It is suspiciously mulletish. That hairstyle. There you go. Yeah, and you've got to just feather. All you need to do in the transition is feather it a little on the sides. Job done. Transition. <laughs> Do you know the other thing I saw today which seems to be a useless retro gadget is you can buy a little radio transmitter that you plug your iPhone into so you can transmit the, the sound, the music from your iPhone onto AM radio and then tune into it on an old-fashioned AM radio. Now, can you think of any reason in the world why a sane person would want to do that? <laughs> I know I love radio, but it's just nuts. There must be some more sensible points we have to make about COVID. Um, well, um, I was I, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a momentary lapse of nonsense. I, I got seriously thinking about uh, the way governments and our government is no different. Are having uh, I've got these double standards. Uh, applied to COVID and climate change, right? So if you think about it, I think everybody in the kind of Western world now is bought into the idea that, you know, whatever you think of the efficacy of, of, of vaccine, vaccination, vaccination is really the only way you can, we're going to get out of this if we all do it. And, and everybody agrees that it's only going to work, you know, every country's agreed that it's only going to work, well, most of them have, if, if we get, and you know, to Australia anyway, if we get to a certain level of uh, buy-in, so 70% or whatever, have to get it for it to work. We know that there's a kind of a, a point, a tipping point, if you like, where we'll be, in, we'll, we'll be in control of the virus if we get to that, 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 that golden, the, the sunlit uplands of 70%, right? Now, when you get to climate change, we've got the Paris Accord, right? And every and every country, Australia included, has bought into these targets, and saying, "Right, we've got to do it." And 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 you go, "Well, hang on a minute. It, even if Australia does it, 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 it we, we're, we're tiny, 
tiny drop in the ocean compared to China. China's about half bloody, you know. So it's it's nice. And, and they say, well, no, no, we can't control China. We just we've just got to do our bit in Australia, and and Britain's got to do their bit. And but the, that's a bit like saying, I'm going to have the jab. But I, you know, knowing full well, there's a good chance that seventy percent of Australians won't bother. But I'm still going to do it. But it may, the, the way we used to do vaccines in the flu, right, was that if I was nervous, Nelly, and I didn't want to catch the flu, I'd go and have the vaccine. I didn't yeah, ask yeah, everybody right. else to have the vaccine so that I wouldn't catch the flu. But we've kind of reversed the onus of responsibility quite strangely in a sort of something that really starts reminding me of sort of Herbert Spencer and social Darwinism. I'm sort of alarmed, slightly alarmed about this. Is, am I the only mm. one? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not, Nick. It's one of the many great reversals. It's the same as, you know, when I was growing up in the UK, uh, the, the job of the National Health Service was to protect us. Now it's us protect, Now it's the population of Britain protecting the NHS, you know. Well, the primary reversal, the primary reversal, I think, is that we used to quarantine sick people. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's a fairly significant shift, point. I would have thought. That's a very good point. Or the vulnerable. So... Hmm. A very interesting statistics out this week from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, where they're finally telling us what else is on people's death certificates as well as COVID. It turns out in 41% of cases, there's also dementia on the death certificate. Uh, it's a fairly significant thing to know, isn't it? Um, you know, and, and, and interestingly, last year, dementia deaths went down. I just sort of sense they've just yeah. shuffled them from one yeah. column to the other uh, without telling us. Uh, but didn't we have a case in the UK or a couple of cases where um, you know, the death certificate read something like, uh, you know, uh, presence of COVID. Uh, also, uh, every bone and body shattered due to being run over by a bus. Wasn't, uh, wasn't that one, didn't that one end up in the COVID column? You know, someone got rolled over by a Leyland, uh, you know, double-decker at some point, and like, that COVID, it'll get you, you know. Well, you've got to watch out. Can't be too careful. Well, I remember my, um, you know, often, I mean, it's quite common for people to have more than one thing on their death certificate. I mean, my, my, my dear late, late, uh, late friend Christopher Pearson, I remember, mm. It was a man who enjoyed life, put it like that. You know, he didn't do anything by halves. And so it was tragic when he passed away at 63, but none of us were just particularly surprised. And uh, I, I, I asked his doctor, at, at the, who was out there at the funeral, I said, look, you know, what did Peter actually die of? He said, I don't know. I had to go onto a second full scat page to list all the reasons. You know, I mean, it just happens to people, right? You know, So I think it's inevitable that, that you know, the 1,000... Eight, eight and eighty deaths, I think, so far in Australia put down to COVID. It's inevitable that a very large proportion of those probably would have passed away anyway. Sadly, especially given that the average age of death is eighty-seven. So, it just, I just, and I'm not supposed to say this, but I just can't help thinking that maybe we've just overreacted a tad. Is 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 that is that other is that other statistic still true that was being bandied about a couple of weeks ago that? Um, I think I can't remember which country it was. It was, it might have been here. It was certainly the UK or somewhere, that the or the US. That the average death, average age of people dying with COVID, is actually a year, year and a half, older than the average death in that country. Average de age of death in that country. 
That that would certainly be true here. I mean, the, the, uh, what's the life the life ex, life expectancy for women is what eighty five, mm. eighty six now, and men about eighty two, eighty three. So, you know, clearly, I hope that I go on living forever. But uh, at eighty seven, you've got to say, well, okay, it's a fair innings. Yeah. I, but I don't know. We've never. It's always been very hard to have this conversation because people get so upset, don't they? That's what's so fun, fun about it. Um, but you get you get people who, um, when you've got health ministers and uh, health officials getting up and saying, you know, and tragically uh, we announced today that two people have died, one age 90, one age 93, and you're like, yeah, it's tragic. They had so many afternoons left to look forward to, you know, so much, so much mashed pumpkin to eat and, you know, and so many relatives not to recognise when they got visited finally. It... The, 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 it is a massive overreaction, and um, you know I'm reminded of uh, hardier generations, past generations. Who, um, uh, I mean, you might both recall uh, the most, um, you know, the, the worst ever fatality in a motor racing event was in 1955 when a car went into the crowd at Le Mans and killed 80 people. And not only did the race continue, but like nothing really happened. And next year, the race was held again. And one of the reasons that people put forward for you know why things just continued was that this was in France. You know, it was only ten years after the war; they'd seen far worse, and um, yeah. they uh, just carried on. Different times, different I mean, times. I, I often think, well, if they launched the Apollo program today. And it was Apollo 1, wasn't it, went up in flames on the launch pad, or was it certainly one of the early Apollos, and, and tragically three astronauts were killed. Today, that would, mm. that's the end. Whole program, two, can't go on, it's too dangerous, you know, every life is precious. But they were people, you know, I think all those, almost all of yeah. those Apollo astronauts had, were, were, were pilots, who many of whom had flown in World War Two. Different spirit, different spirit, yeah. Sadly, I mean, I mean the truth is, we, we've, you know, in the West anyway, we have got a lot better at preserving life, which is why, you know, when you get the statistic getting serious for a minute, that you know, it's absolutely terribly sad that 13 American soldiers were killed during the um, the debacle in Kabul um, and, and, you know, a lot more civilians. But the, the, the death of the soldiers is, um, you know, I mean, there hadn't been a... Considering that they were on active service, there hadn't been a death of an American serviceman for a year prior to that, um, which is which is pretty amazing for an pretty mm. amazing for an occupying yeah. force, you know, ag against a hostile enemy. It's pretty amazing. Which is which is getting, and we'll get better and better, you know, when if they have their their way, when all the all, you know all most warfare is conducted from a bunker in in Ari in Phoenix, Arizona, while. Uh, you know, the bombs and missiles are delivered by drones from the stratosphere. Um, We're all going to live a lot longer, I think, aren't we, now that the nanny state has enforced the six-pack rule in Sydney, and presumably that will continue after COVID and spread. What were your thoughts on this decision to uh, the public health officials to, to restrict the amount of alcohol individuals could consume in a, in a lockdown hotel? Or I, I thought... I thought when you talked about six six packs, I thought you were about Gladys re relaxing the gym rules. <laughs> no, that's the other sick rack rule. Um, the, the the rule the ruling that the police and public health officials are checking to ensure that that take away alcohol entering the homes of people who aren't allowed to leave is no more than 
six cans of beer. Uh, that's inhuman, isn't it? Is I think I think they're also allowed if if you're not a beer drinker, you you're allowed you can you can swap it out for a three seventy five ml bottle of spirits, one bottle of white, and um, well, you know that's breakfast taken care of in my household. But you know after that, the day's looking a bit dry. Yeah, I want to think about the lockdown. Is it's, it's, it's awkward going to a bottle shop these days because you can't pretend it's for a party. <laughs> I, 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 you know, it's a bit. It actually reminds me of gyms again as well because you know you find that uh, you don't want to go back to the same bottle shop too often. You know, you know, you know. So you you make a kind of mental map of about the five that that are easily accessible, and you make sure you 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 rotate them because you don't want the seventeen-year-old. Uh, uh, eyebrow pierced assistant giving you a withering glance as as, as he recalls this is your second visit in four days you know mm, mm. yeah 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 a bit like a Qantas hostess <laughs> another beer sir that's you true know. That you, you make a good point Simon about um, about well I didn't think Nick said it about you don't want to appear that you are planning any kind of celebration very early on in um, all these lockdowns there was a case in Melbourne where a um, couple of uh, nurses or medicos were having a, a lunch break at uh, a nearby KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken Outlet, and they noticed someone come in and order like 15 buckets of chicken <laughs> and um, and they left in one car. There was a couple of people and uh, and these medicos took the, down the license plate, rang the police. The police then, you know, found out where the car was registered and uh, where its address was listed, went and visited, and there were like, you know, 15 people having ah. a party. So they got busted by KFC uh, uh, surveillance, freelance KFC surveillance. KFC meets KGB, yeah. So, yeah, you, you don't, don't buy large amounts of fried chicken. Don't buy extremely uh, impressive amounts of alcohol. Just do it in a, a piecemeal fashion, and you'll be okay. One wing at a time. Talking of getting lectured at bottle shops, I remember <laughs> election day 2007, you remember that, Kevin 07's great victory. And uh, I was in the BWS in Kirribilli and they had, I forget what champagne it was, but it was on special. So I was just buying half a dozen bottles to stock up. And as I walked out on election day, I ran into Tony O'Leary, John Howard's press secretary, <laughs> feeling very glum. And he looked at me and said, what are you buying those for? I said, to celebrate, of course. <laughs> he said, what is there to celebrate? <laughs> <laughs> I remember back in the mid-90s when uh, there was some French nuclear testing. Do you remember that? Uh, Mid-90s, France um, mm. resumed some sort of nuclear testing. Mm. Muratoa Atoll, if I remember right. Mm. No, I think that's right, yeah. Unfortunately, it didn't spark a swimwear um, fashion known as the Muroa, but uh, it wasn't as artfully named as Bikini at all. <laughs> anyway, um, I was living in the eastern suburbs at the time, and there was a very, I guess, pre-woke uh, bottle shop there, a very conscientious bottle shop. And they very ostentatiously declared that um, because they opposed the French nuclear tests, they would uh, they were trying to run all their stocks of French gear out of the shop as quickly as possible. So they were giving away, you know, lovely French champagne for... At cost price, this was great. You know, we were the whole neighbourhood was ecstatic. You know, so they were selling it for the cost of domestic riesling. It was brilliant. Yeah. yeah. When uh, going go, going back to um, 
going back to Kevin 07, I I'd actually le- I was actually living in New York at the time because I'd gone there, I'd gone to, I'd moved there the previous year, and because the Obama election was happening at the round of around about that time, I'd sort of my eye had take I'd taken my eye off the ball of the uh, of Australian politics for a while, but I remember I do remember dining out uh, in New York with my new American friends, telling them that. Um, yeah, yeah, I am paying attention to the. Uh, there's also an election going on in Australia, which I'm, 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 I'm paying attention to because it's not entirely inconceivable. It will result in my Australia, my country, uh, putting itself in the hands of Abbott and Costello, which, which, which my American uh, friends thought that was very, very funny. What about the amazing predictive powers of Brett Sutton? <laughs> A year ago, last August 2020, Brett declared. Victoria will never again have more than 300 cases, 400 cases a day. Not on my watch. Yesterday, 324. Today, 334. On his watch. So COVID does tend to make idiots out of everybody sooner or later. It's a, it's a dangerous game to make any kind of predictions. But uh, you've got people like Peter Fitzsimons, who every one of his predictions is wrong. This is the Sydney Morning Herald uh, blowhard millionaire faux Australian idiot who just gets everything wrong. His prediction, I think, a month ago was, um, oh, you know, Victoria's done the right thing. They've hit the hard lockdown. They'll be coming out of this before New South Wales. Well done, Pete. Good work, mate. But it's like it's like, it's like Norman Swan, the ABC's, you know, Mr. Bedside Man and Norman Swan. He was, he's been spectacularly wrong on, on, on everything. But the weird thing is, getting things hopelessly wrong doesn't seem to doesn't seem to make you any less employable anymore. If you've got an architect, <laughs> uh, uh, seven of whose, seven out of 10 of whose buildings fell over within six months of them getting built, they pretty well, they pretty soon stop being <laughs> asked to build buildings, wouldn't they? But now, not in things like computer modeling, uh, pandemics, just because you've massively yep. fucked up doesn't mean to say you won't be the first yep. person they ask next time it happens. You've just uh, you've just described uh, Tim Flannery's uh, career model. It's basically what he's done for the past 20 years. I try, I, I, in my column in The Spectator a few months ago, I tried to make that, I said that this should be a verb or, or it should be a noun. A Flannery is uh, you know, a prediction which yeah. we, can, we, can, we can confidently re- rely on never to come anywhere near being true. That's a Flannery. <laughs> Friends, friends of mine, um, fr- fr- friends of mine refer to rainfall as Flannery. Well, there was a bit of Flannery about this morning. <laughs> you know, had the cricket match go called off, mate. Too much Flannery. It was Flannery all day. Unreal. The thing about COVID, it's been like watching the climate thing in speeded up, right? So you don't have to wait, you know, two centuries to see it all come to no. nothing. You you can see it happening in a year. Um, <laughs> you'd be, but you, it's just interesting to see there's you know the, there's no sort of self awareness or embarrassment uh, by those who make the extraordinary predictions. Uh, I see that Neil Ferguson, this is the, the the bad Neil Ferguson, the one at Imperial College. They're what they call professor. They call him they call him Professor Pants Down because he be, because he broke his own COVID <laughs> rules to go and have a bit yes. on the side uh, with his girlfriend. But they, they you know there's never been an apology for saying what did he say. Um, uh, half a million deaths in the UK, and just instead, and I've rose with somebody the other day. Well, eventually and accumulatively, we will. You know, you just got to wait a few decades, and uh, it'll eventually add up. Uh, you know, and again, you go. We can go back to your um point about 
uh, death certificates. You know, he predicted 150,000 deaths in Australia, and I said, "Look, we haven't seen 150,000 deaths." But they said, "Yes, but we might. We might." And there's always this unprovable proposition that we have to do all this. So you say. So you say. You, so you're saying that. that so, so that all, all these all these guys like Hutton and 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 Ferguson, what we, them what we might call stopped clock experts. At some point, they will be correct. <laughs> Once every millennium. And now let's welcome to the podcast our guest today. It's Fred Paul, author of the magnificent biography of Bill Leake, Die Laughing. Fred, welcome to the podcast. G'day, Nick. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a magnificent book, as I've told you before. It, 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 it really, you really do this great man justice. Uh, it's, it's a well-written uh, account. I mean, quite how you managed to fit a life as large as that into 320 pages, I'm not really sure, but you did. Uh, you've, it's superbly researched, very well-written. And, of course, uh, it's a parable for our censorious times. Uh, congratulations, Fred. Look, look, I mean, the one point I must start with is I did. I start, I made the mistake, probably, of starting towards the end of the book because I wanted to read about those tragic and difficult events that led up to his death the last few years of his life. And um, I thought, I don't know whether I can read the whole book. It brought back so many mm, unhappy memories of that period of working mm. with him. Yeah, uh, but then I went to the rest of the book, and of course it was it was joyous to read the celebration of a life. But for you writing it, I mean, it's it's bad enough for me as a reader, but for you writing it to be immersed in the tragedy of this great man, how did you do it? Basically, how did you do it for three years? Well, that's a that's a good question, mate. At first, it was very difficult because, uh, as as you and I know, and and Tim does, and perhaps Simon, I'm I'm not sure. You know, we miss him. You know, um, he he was a he was a one of the defining characteristics of Bill was that he had an enormous uh, gift for friendship. And when he left, he left a lot of us, um, you know, feeling his absence. And to be forced to think about him every day uh, was was quite difficult. Um, but then I, I kind of got over that. You know, I still miss him, of course, as we all do. But eventually i just it just became this project that i was pursuing very objectively and his life just became this this kind of project that i was working on and and that led to the to what was even more frustrating than than missing him was discovering things about him that i wish i'd known when he was still alive because i discovered things about him that you know, had we not spent so much of our time together just drinking and laughing and, and carrying on, um, we could have spent, uh, perhaps with the benefit of hindsight, you know, a little bit more productively discussing amazing things like, you know, his passion for art and uh, the, the, um, the, the discovery of, of uh, libertarianism um, and how it changed during our times and all that sort of thing, you know. But hopefully I've captured all that in the book anyway. Yeah. And, and look, I know Tim and Simon are queuing up to write, ask questions, so I'll just ask one more and then hand over, hand over to them. The, I think what you did capture in this brilliantly 
uh, Fred, and, and helped explain it too, is, is a sort of the great dichotomy of Bill Leake. On the one hand, the sort of knockabout um, guy, you know, would have been comfortable in, in any company with, with, you know, with, with plumbers, with tradies, with yeah, anybody, you know. And, and on the other hand, the intellectual, you know, the hidden, the secret intellectual, which is the only way to be an intellectual in Australia. Of course. <laughs> uh, 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 as, as you know, as you very well know, but how, how, how did he manage those two things in tension? Well, Bill, Bill reached a stage in life where he actually got tired of pretending to be one thing or the other. He, he, he learned as a young man that you had to be one or the other. Um, in certain company, you had to be a bit of a yobbo um, and know a, a, a wide range of jokes and be able to drink everyone under the table and, you know, and, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, have a blue if, if things got, you know, out of hand. Um, but he also learned when he was young that, uh, you know, the joys of, of great, great music. Music was his first love. Um, and, uh, and great art revealed enormous, enormously valuable things to him early in life. Like he saw Picasso's for the first time uh, at the Art Gallery of New South Wales when he was, I think he was about 18. And uh, he was still talking about it, you know, 30 years later, what, a, what an effect that it had on him. And, but by that stage of his life, he had really quite resolved to not be one thing or the other. He was, he, he was just Bill. Like, he was a very unique bloke, uh, especially for Australia. But one of his talents was that he could be enormously crude in polite, beha- in polite company and enormously erudite in unsophisticated company. He just didn't, he, he just didn't uh, care about whether people judged him um, wrongly for you know for who he was because he just was Bill and he you know he did suffer from depression a lot and he suffered from anxiety but to his enormous credit he never in the later stage of his life he never really compromised on who he was. He you, was you, you could make an argument that he was a better artist than um, Picasso, couldn't you? I mean, so you well, like. yes, because he 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 was more articulate than Picasso. I mean, P- Picasso was famously conf- Picasso famously confined his ideas to canvas, whereas Bill was always extremely articulate and extremely interested in verbal communication as well. So, you know, I mean, he you know, Bill, great- I mean, Bill never made the mistake of putting two noses on someone. For <laughs> no, no, he um. He, he, if he ever made the mistake of, of, of sort of, uh, you know, exaggerating people's, um, people's looks, it was to make them look uglier. You know, there's the famous <laughs> anecdote of him uh, delivering the, uh, the, the portrait of Graham Richardson, Senator Graham Richardson. And um, uh, he, he'd sat, Richo had sat for this portrait on quite a few occasions, but sat behind the canvas and they were talking together and, Bill's, you know, sort of, you know, working away on this canvas while Richo's wondering what the hell it looks like. And then Richo turned up eventually to see it for the very first time. And uh, he looked at it and he said, Bill, I know 
I know I'm fat and I know I'm ugly, but I'm not that fat and I'm not that ugly. And Bill said, yes, yes, Richo, but one day you will be. <laughs> I, I remember he did it. He very kindly did a little head headshot of me to go on the back of my book, and and I got it, and I thought, oh god, that's awful! I can't. Oh, I rang him up to complain. He said, no, it's part of the cartoonist's code. We can put blemishes in. We can insert blemishes, but we can't take them out. <laughs> it's, there's another interesting sort of uh, aspect to his career. He joined the art department at Fairfax in the mid-1980s when Fairfax was, uh, the art department there, was um, being built to become one of the great art departments, uh, newspaper art departments in the world. They had really high ambitions for this department and Bill joined it. It was a, it was a stable of absolute stars and Bill joined it and became, immediately became one of the best in that team. But when they assembled that team, it was, a, it was a very specific moment in newspaper publishing in Australia. They had to get rid of the, art, the old art department and bring in these new sort of radical, you know, idiosyncratic artists. The, the previous team of artists had always had done kind of generally realistic portraits of people, you know, for the newspaper. And their, their, uh, their modus operandi was to make them look better, better looking, more attractive than they actually were. And they were all paid out and replaced by people, artists, who made them look uglier. No, I was just uh, just thinking thinking about Bill's uh, gift to, for, for seeing things in people. Uh, he, uh, he was on the phone to me once when he was just putting the finishing touches to a particular cartoon. And uh, he'd just like to ring up and have a chat just during... You know, the creative phase of this work was done. He was just, you know, filling in, the, doing the mechanical aspects, he used to say, just doing the mechanical bits. And uh, just rang for a chat. And uh, he happened to be drawing Gillian Triggs, depicting yeah. Gillian Triggs, the former human rights commissioner. <laughs> and he, he said this to me. And anyway, I, um, I said, oh, look, have you just seen? She's just made some announcement in the papers about blah, blah, blah. Something else, you know, stupid and censorious. And Bill said, oh, really? I'll add some more wrinkles then. <laughs> And uh, so he he improved the artwork on the fly. But just getting to Nick's lovely point about the emotional challenges of doing something like this and how you were able to divorce yourself from uh, your deep connection with Bill and uh, your love of Bill and, to, and, and the way you do it is, you know, you make it a job. You make yep. it a project, you make it a task, uh, you know, for three years, you're consumed mm. by it. But to a degree, I guess, you, you couldn't have accomplished this unless you put the emotion to one side. And this is actually a, a small challenge I've got with reading the book. I've actually put it aside for a time when I've got a couple of weeks off because I'm, I, I, sus, I suspect very strongly I'm going to struggle a little bit, as will a lot of Bill's friends, to get through the book without feeling a great deal of, of regret um, and sadness at his loss, uh, especially, as Nick says, the challenges of the last couple of years of his life. And, uh, you know, I've actually put the book aside for, for just for the time being. I've got some weeks off coming up and uh, I'll have a look at it then. But uh, for now, it's... Uh, and also the, the, the cover image is so beautiful and so clear. It's like he's there, you know. It's, um, uh, it is, uh, it's going to be a tough time. 
I, I see what you mean, and uh, the people who have managed to get through it have um, very, very flatteringly, uh, you know, told me that I, I did capture him, which is nice. Um, that w- that was always the objective, and that image on the cover, um, I always envisaged being a newspaper man. I always envisaged that the image that would go with the title Die Laughing would be Bill laughing. You know, us us newspaper guys, we're so literal and, you know. Yeah. And you've got no shortage of shots to choose from. Yeah, exactly. exactly yeah. yeah. But really, the, the, the photo of him looking kind of serenely serious against the title Die Laughing, it just, it really does capture him. You're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, I have the book here in the house. But also as well, just to get back to Nick's point about, yeah, just sorry, sorry, just to get back to Nick's point as well about the multiple uh, facets of Bill. You've actually got it in the cover. You've got Die Laughing. You've got the yeah. the, the hilarity of Bill, yeah. very funny man, and Serious Bill. Yeah, all in the one, um, all in the one handy paperback size frame. Right. Yeah, very good. Well, I mean, I, 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 in in many ways, Tim, I feel very lucky. Um, you know, I mean, we were all lucky to have known him for a start. Um, but you know, I, I, the book actually. Now that I to, to elaborate on Nick's original question, the book actually became like an extension of my friendship with him. I know that sounds kind of you know nostalgic and a bit mm. schmaltzy. But, you know, that, it was actually w- when I realised that, I, I used it to help me keep going. Um, and I do think it is, you know, like I, th- there were times when I was writing and I'd, I'd have imaginary conversations with him and, um, mm. and it, not, not that I would, uh, you know, seeking his approval for the book or anything, but it just seemed like the, the, the natural next best thing to do. Um, you know, now he's gone. Well, you know, yeah. I'm a writer. I'll I'll just I'll just write about it. You know, so that's how that's how it came up. Um, yeah. But I am looking forward to your um, to, to your opinion of the book, mate. I'd... Well, it's you know, it's 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 uh, quite quite helpful that you are write like a poet. So you know, that's uh, that's oh, going to be. I'm very, I'm very much looking forward to it from that You're point of view. From Thank just, you. Uh, Thank the, you. just the uh, the workmanship in it is uh, will be great. Um, over to you, Simon. I didn't. I didn't know. Uh, I didn't know anything like as well as you guys knew him. Um, in fact, I really only got to know him in the last two or three years of his life. When I, I'd been overseas for ten years, and when I came back, through my friendship with Rowan Dean, who is his neighbour up in Wagstaff, and I went up there and had a couple of fabulous dinners at his house. Um, and um, but when I went to the house, I remember being, you know. I'm ashamed to say I hadn't realised what a great artist he was until I went to his house and saw the paintings on his wall of his of his children and had some serious serious portraiture of politicians that I wasn't aware of. And it and it going back to something that one of us said earlier on. I wonder whether um, I wonder whether you can tell me that and I'll give you an answer. To this do you think that because he was um, because he was a really brilliant cartoonist, because he could pin and nail caricatures of people and capture a, a, an idea and a thought in a very funny way, do you think that when somebody has that reputation as a cartoonist, that it detracts from 
it diminishes their reputation as a serious artist. Do you think it would have? Yeah. It does, Simon. I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. And it's it's sad that that's the case. The when when Bill was when Bill first started entering the Archibald, um, it became apparent that the Archibald judges or the trustees of the Art Gallery of New South Wales who were judging the Archibald were constantly looking for gimmicks, um, and and Bill actually offered them. You know, a gimmick is a bad word, but that it seems to be that that that's the trend in the in the Archibalds is that that the winner has to have some sort of um, unconventional technique going on, and that 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 seems to be the case every year now. Early on, when Bill started taking the Archibald seriously in the mid '90s, he came to it with. You know, I wouldn't call it a gimmick, but he, he did have his unconventional technique, and that was caricature. And he was he was one of history's greatest ever caricaturists. I mean, you, you know, you wouldn't even need to speak English to to see the humour in a lot of Bill's cartoons. You wouldn't have to understand what was going on. You just look at the absurd faces and postures and body language and the interaction between the characters in his cartoons, and you would understand there is something absolutely hilarious going on here. And Bill, Bill brought that to the Archibalds, and they just pretty much, um, well, they just weren't interested. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dying shame, I think. It's a, it's, it's, it's a great example of just pure snobbery, uh, ill-informed, ill-informed snobbery. Absolutely, yeah. And, and this is at a time when... Uh, when the media um, usurped art as, or not a time, but, you know, in an epoch when when the media usurped art as the dominant force in our culture. You know, pre- so, you know previous to the sort of mid-20th century, um, the dominant forces in our culture were, you know, were sort of great art and great music and the aristocracy and so on. And that was all usurped by the media in the late 20 in the from the mid 20th century onwards when you know society kind of um democratized and bill was at the forefront of it he was one of the great newspaper artists of all time and yet he couldn't bridge that gap from from newspaper art to portraiture which is a shame well i think i think you've as you i think a lot of people would think that he did it 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 it, it just wasn't recognized by the right people well, what what Simon's identified is um, is Academy Award syndrome, where uh, yeah, but that's that's yeah, that's Academy Award syndrome where um, comedians never win. They can be the best comic actors ever, but that's not serious, so they get flicked. Bill had a lot of friends on the conservative side when he was largely identified as being a tribal Labor lefty. Yeah, uh, I was a friend of his back, you know, before. Uh, his views yeah. shifted, or rather, society yeah. shifted, and Bill remained much the same. But he had friends on the right when he was a lefty, and when yeah. he was perceived to have uh, of uh, to have abandoned the left, his left wing friends threw him away, which I think is one of the great great uh, examples of the shallowness of, of political culture in this country that you'd let something as stupid as politics block a friendship to someone as lovely as Bill. 
it's that's poisonous and toxic and awful to me. Yeah, well, the, 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 one of the defining uh, sort of summations of politics, not only in Australia but in the in the the liberal world at the moment, is is uh, um, leftists think we're evil. Leftists think us conservatives are evil. Us conservatives just think leftists are wrong. And so when we disagree with them, we just want to persuade them to to a more enlightened view, whereas they just think um, we can be discarded because um, our opinions and our, therefore our characters are deeply flawed. And, uh, yeah, it's been interesting, Tim, that, um, that there's been... Uh, very sort of tepid um, interest in the book um, from some of Bill's former lifelong left-wing friends, and I, I think I think what they're what they're really afraid of, without you know flattering myself too much, because it's all about Bill. What they're afraid of is that the book will prove them wrong. That that you know whatever aspersions were cast at Bill in the later years of his life will be categorically proved to be incorrect by this book, and that was always my intention. That was the that was the underlying intention of the book right from the start. Above all else, you know, to 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 uh, to capture a a life, a great Australian life that was extremely well lived, but more than anything, to prove his critics, they were profoundly and fundamentally and criminally wrong in what they said about him in the last years of his life. This sounds great, mate. Just quick, just quickly, mate. Um, what, um, what, give us a top three, not, not to give too much of your book away, top three things yeah. you learned about Bill, things that surprised you. Oh, gee, that's interesting. Um... Dire Straits, for example. Oh <laughs> no, not die straight. That's a good tip. Thank you for reminding me of that. That actually didn't make it into the book because I um I, 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 I didn't want to be too harsh on him. But yeah, he he was a die straight <laughs> fan. Apparently they were hip back then. But anyway, um that's that's one of them. Um, you know that Brett Whiteley as well. This is an Australian artistic disease. Brett Whiteley was an obsessive die straights fan. And he would lock himself in little hotels, uh, and uh, and use whatever drugs he could get a hold of that day, and just play dire straits until he passed out. There's something is wrong with the artistic community in this nation, my friend. Although, you know, well, I've got to say, there are a couple of songs that, that pass muster. I'll, I'll just say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fred, you stand accused of selective use of the facts. How do you plead? <laughs> Oh well, I I, I I plead guilty, Your Honour. Um, there there were a couple of <laughs> couple of anecdotes <laughs> that um, that I was uh, privy to that um, that you know can't w wouldn't make the book and uh, would wind, I'd wind up in court as, as a result anyway. So um, you know, but I, sorry sorry to interrupt, and we'll get to Simon in a second. But I just do want to make the point that um, that every biographer has to make these. Uh, these decisions. Um, uh, Julian Barnes once asked in a, an essay about the art of biography, he said, I, does, does a, how, where does a biographer draw the line about what to leave in and what to leave out? And he, he wasn't asking the question rhetorically. He said, 
I genuinely don't know the answer. And Julian Barnes is actually, as, as you probably know, he's a magnificent biographer. So when I read that, I thought, okay, well, that's, that, that, if, it's, if it's too hard for Julian Barnes, then it's too hard for me. There, were time, there are things about Bill that are enormously unsavory um, that, that, you know, his close friends know about, but I, I, I didn't think that they would add to a biography of him. I think my, my biography of him is, is candid enough to know that the man had flaws. That's all we really need to know. Um, the rest is, you know, it's a cracking story of a life well lived. I'm, I'm very glad. Um, I'm very, very glad that uh, I'll never reach the level of uh, of, uh, of Bill's artistic genius and uh, and deserved <laughs> fame that anyone's going to write a biography of me. Because by God, you'd be leaving a lot out. I swear to Christ, it'd be it'd be a very thin volume. Let's say. I'm, I was just going to be a bit silly and say. Um, because we were talking before about, uh, I mean, I mean, you know, uh, Bill Bill famously gave up drinking, um, but I think it was it yes. probably would have been a great example of his principles that w- we were talking we were talking earlier about the uh, the appalling uh, 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 um, six cans of six cans of beer mandate that the that the government the, the state government's thinking of um, of limiting us to, and I was thinking that even though even though. Even though Bill had stopped drinking a long time ago, if he was still alive today, I suspect he would have been more angry about that and rushed to his and rushed to his pad and pens about that. Mate, you would have you are you are absolutely on the money there, yeah. Simon. Bill, even when he was not drinking, Bill insisted that people drank in his company when they came to his place. I know. Yeah. I so, know. Yeah, I you're know. absolutely on the money, and that's how deep the libertarian instinct. Um, was embedded in him that you know even if he wasn't able to drink for for whatever reason he absolutely insisted on the rights of other people to do so he and he would he would just be so so um, furious at what has happened to Australia that somewhere in Australia there are bureaucrats and scolds and politicians who have decided between them how many beers a man can drink in a day. So I, 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 don't, I don't drink myself, but I will defend to the last drop of ink, to the last, <laughs> I will draw till the last drop of ink in my pen to defend your right to get, to get plastered. <laughs> Very well put. Yeah, that, if Voltaire was Australian, that's what he would have said. <laughs> Fred, look, we could go on talking forever. You've got many other media engagements to move on to, but uh, look, I mean, we 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 said at the start when we when we sat down to think about this podcast, what kind of person would we want on as a guest, and we immediately said Bill Leake, and and sadly that's not possible. So it's great to have you on talking about Bill, and 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 there's enough, obviously enough to do. I think we could actually dedicate a whole series of podcasts to the memory of Bill Leake. So. Once people have had a chance to read your book, let's do that. Oh, mate, can I, can I just add, if anyone's interested, that they can get the book at dielaughing.org.au. I'll get it. I'll definitely get it. Oh, thank you, Simon. Thanks for having me on, guys. It was a great chat. Mate, if I can just, like, before Simon starts talking, one of my... Uh, I, I, I've been to the UK several times. I love a lot of the place... Um, 
that my, probably my favorite area is the Lakes District uh, up north, and um, it's it's beautiful. And I found this little pub there, and it was a classic English sort of spring evening, gentle rain, this little pub, you know, with you know little windows. And I looked through the windows, and there's um, and it was a beautiful sort of scene, you know, uh, men in caps, you know, those flat caps and. It's all very rustic, and this pub's probably you know one thousand years old, and uh, there's all these um, dogs asleep in front of an open fireplace. It was all very pretty, and I walked in, and do you know what a wet dog smells like in front of a fire? Like the stench was unbelievable. It took me a good half an hour. You know, you get used to odors. It took me a good half an hour to 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 settle down in the environment until I could order food. Because people had lovely food, but you just had to eat it in this miasma of dog stench. It, it, it kind of, um, you know, the reality of England in three dimensions is very different to the, uh, the postcard of England. It, it's just one of those things you put up with as an English drinker, isn't it, Simon? Well, it's, 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 you get used to it. And, you know, if, if you'd gone to the gift shop in that village, you probably could have bought a bottle of... Um, um, uh, Yves Saint Laurent, uh, 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 damp dog aftershave. It's just you know you you know you. It's a it's a <laughs> people people love it. It was a hell of a hell of a village, but like, what is what is it with you guys and those narrow roads up there though? I mean, this little car, this little Ford Escort rental, one of the smallest cars on the English market. And uh, and and I I lost my deposit on it because I got it so scratched up, you know, while driving down these uh, narrow roads. Because you know, like seriously, you're hitting trees every second foot. It was ridiculous. Well, well, because because when that road was built, Tim, it was built for the Ford horse. <laughs> my, my experience of driving along those roads is you inevitably find yourself behind an eighty-year-old driving a Morris Allegro, which is. The most poorly named car in the world, <laughs> I can tell you. Simon, you've got some serious topics to discuss. I was, um, you know, I think, it, you know, look, I mean, joking apart, we, we, we probably, it's hard, to, it's hard to have a conversation this week without at least mentioning, you know, what happened in Afghanistan. And I was thinking that, um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, everyone, you know, very concerned about, people left there and you know whatever you think about the the way the america uh, you know uh performed that particular strategic withdrawal whatever you want to call it um but i was when i was reading the reports about everyone's worrying about what the state you know what's you know what's going to happen to the uh the, the, the women particularly and the and the girls who after 20 years of you know a lot of those girls have grown up thinking that education is a you know a normal thing and and I was I was I got a kind of a a little bit of a kind of a whiff of deja vu because I'd recently a couple of days before I'd read a small article in a, in an Australian newspaper and I suddenly realized it wasn't deja vu it was because it was reminding me of um this year as well as being the 21st anniversary of 9/11 and the invasion of Afghanistan was also the 21st anniversary of a kind of watershed Australian event that had some interesting parallels. Um, an event that happened in 2001 in Australia in a small, in a remote, dusty desert community where a bunch of progressive people arrived with the intention of 
introducing uh, more liberal, more progressive values. And of course, what I'm talking about is, is an event that is actually celebrated every year in Broken Hill. It's called the Broken Hill Festival. And it's a, and it's, it's a, it's a, it's an anniversary every year of the, the making of the movie Priscilla Queen of the Desert. Now that might sound like I'm being a bit flippant, but, but that, but that film, was a great example. What that film was about was actually what happened in Broken Hill. Broken Hill, as I'm sure we all remember, prior to, you know, well, even in 2001, if you were a member of the LG, LGBT community. It's not a town you would particularly want to have lived in, or if you did live in it, it's a, it was a town, you know, it's a rough and ready, some would say redneck mining community, where, you know, you'd, you'd have to be pretty brave to stand up and, you know, identify as being LGBT. The, the, make, the making of that movie there, which was about that very thing, it was, you know, life imitating art, um, also, also it emboldened the, the LGBTQ community that was already living there, to be to stand up and and you know and come out if you like and in fact what I, and you know and and of course today like every town in australia attitudes have changed for the better you know uh you know and and and, and that's a wonderful thing but back then uh, it's quite sad that in the aftermath of the movie with the you know within within days of it wrapping um a lot of the locals who had appeared to welcome the crew and everything because they spent loads of money in the pubs and they stayed in the hotels and everything to embrace them as it were they reverted to their well they revert you know they reverted and a lot of the people who've been brave enough to to identify as lgbt got beaten up afterwards mm. uh, and and i suppose that's what i was thinking of when that's the kind of concern we have for these for the um you know women and mm. women and mm. um girls in afghanistan is that now that the now that the progressive liberating force has left town um You'd hope that um, some of that sticks. You'd hope so, as it did in Australia, right? Even in broken. I mean, I think this is what what gets my goat about this new sort of you know movement that says we're we're racist, we're homophobic, transphobic, you know, phobic. This we're phobic, not. that. We're not. They should have lived back then, right? I mean, I don't want to sound like an old bloke, but I, I remember there was a a guy called Richard Sprout who worked for the Australian. He was a young, enthusiastic young reporter in Sydney, and um, the editor-in-chief said, mate, um, how would you like to go and, uh, and be a reporter in, in the Adelaide Bureau? And he jumped at it. He just liked the idea of an adventure. He said, yeah, sure. And one of the old subs overheard this discussion and said to him, mate, what do you want to go to Adelaide for? It's Dubbo with poofs. And uh, I, ju I just mentioned that story because I still think it's funny. But, but also just to, to demonstrate how far we've come and, and there's no acknowledgement of that at all in the critical race theory movement, whatever they're called. Well, it's the the, the, the huge irony of whether it's whether it's um, you know uh, 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 racism or, or sexism, whatever. It's it's the countries it's the countries which have done most to 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 uh, get rid of that stuff are the countries where people feel most uh, comfortable complaining about it still going on. So all the movements, all the you know, all the, the BLM movements, the uh, the Me Too movements, everything—they all came in countries where, let's be honest, you know, y you know, there may be you know, if you know, there is, if you if you really want to go a place where there's systemic racism and systemic 
you know, uh, sexism. Australia is not a country where you're going to find it most easily. I always thought the the move the gays the gays for Palestine movement was rather ill chosen their target of their affection. I mean, Palestine, of course, uh, was and probably still is one of the most illiberal places in the world when it comes to homosexuality. But of course, all that's over overlooked. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, Nick. I mean, a few a few years ago, I uh, went to a um, believe it or not, a Green Left Weekly comedy night in Sydney at a particular inner west town hall and uh, they had both the gay pride flag up on the wall and the Palestinian flag up on the wall and they kept them separate and as a friend of mine said at the time the reason they keep them separate is so that the Palestinian flag doesn't throw the gay pride flag off the ceiling so um, you know you do have that but to Simon's point about Australia being or to both your points about Australia being more a uh, smaller liberal than we're given credit for. A friend of mine moved a few years ago from Melbourne to a small, very small, tiny country town in regional Victoria. And she um, she at one point needed to hire someone to clear some trees from her land or to cut back some trees. And um, she asked around. There's only one, one little general store in this town and the, the owner there said, oh, look, I could recommend, you know, this particular chap... He does all the trees around here. So my friend called this guy and he duly showed up at the appointed time in a frock, a lovely, you know, very feminine uh, bit of attire, you know, very, uh, very, uh, yeah, very summery. And, um, and uh, this, this chap showed up in this dress and, uh, and said, all oh, right, which, uh, which of the trees you're most concerned about? And then went about chopping chopping down or cutting back these trees in his dress. Now, a few days later, my friend happened to be back at the general store and said, he turned up in a dress. And the owner said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mention that. Yeah, yeah, he's a transvestite. Uh, he wears dresses all the time. Uh, we're just used to it. And uh, <laughs> sorry, I should have mentioned it. You know, And the whole town doesn't care. Because he's a really good guy at chopping back trees. <laughs> That's the only important thing. He could show up in a God knows what. No one would mind. People generally don't. If you can do the job properly. It's a profound point. And I think one Bill Leake would have understood perfectly. That, um... Did I tell you did I tell you my did I tell you my uh, arborealist anecdote before? No, please do, Simon, your <laughs> arborealist. Share it with uh, us. Because uh, I, 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 I tell you, I tell you, I tell you, twice in my life I've been able to make this joke. Uh, uh, you've got to really wait for it, but and it's so rare that you can do it. This is the second time. A, a few months ago, in where I live, there's a huge old red river gum on the property in front of my building, and uh, every now it's so old. Every now and then, one of the one of the big limbs gets a bit dodgy looking. So the body, the body corporate, the strata here, rings up North Sydney Council and they come round and they, you know, with their ladders and their trucks and things. And anyway, it happened a couple of weeks and I couldn't believe my luck because I came outside one morning. I was off to go and do a, a bike ride or something. And these guys were at it because there was one dodgy big branch and there were <laughs> and there were and there were three of them. Uh, and and, and I, I couldn't I couldn't couldn't believe my luck. So I walked up to them and I said, excuse me. 
and uh, they all looked down from the tree or whatever. And I said, I just want to say, um, I'm really glad to see you guys. I said, um, when I saw that what was the, what was happening to the tree, I was a bit worried. I I, I, I knew it was too small for, for two for two for two people, and it was it was um, not big enough for four. I'm very glad to see they sent tree fellows. <laughs> Was that was that punchline worth waiting for, Simon? I asked myself. I I, ass, I I assumed that that they would have heard that as they want their life for a living. That they would have heard that dozens of times in their life. They mm. almost fell off their ladders laughing so much. They thought it was the best thing. That, I think it made their week. Well, it just goes to show, doesn't it? Well, you often hold back from making what you think is the obvious joke, but why not? There's just a chance that somebody might laugh. You know? <laughs> this question. Look, I know we've had a long discussion about the name of the podcast and all that. There's another question that needs to be answered. How long should it be? I, I, in the week, I'd, I, I've taken a listen to a couple of podcasts by the great Jordan Peterson. And after about three hours of this, he finally draws it to close. And you think, so soon? <laughs> Perhaps it depends on the content, but I, I, I suspect that people listen. I think it does. <laughs> There is a lovely podcast, by the way, um, run by a, a woman called Danica Patrick, who is uh, very good. She's terrific. And she interviewed Jordan Peterson a week or so ago. And uh, she's, a, she's a, a professional racing car driver. But she has the unusual these days gift of being able to interview someone without interrupting them. And she is, uh, it was, a, it was a, a lovely chat. So if you can look that up, that, that might be instructive as well. Simon, what do you like in the way of podcasts, apart from this one, of course? Well, I listen. I, I quite listen. I like listening to um, uh, uh, James Dellingpole does a podcast with Toby Young in London called London Calling, and I like it. And actually, and but I like it because James Dellingpole has become a bit of a nutter. He's become a bit of a loony. He's a tinfoil hatter, really now, uh, but he's very articulate and he's very amusing. Toby Young is much more measured. And they disagree on some really big fundamental stuff. And that's what makes it great, is that they, they stay just this side of having a punch-up all the time. And it's very entertaining. But they often talk about, one of their subjects is, what's the, what's the ideal length of these podcasts? Because Dalling Paul sometimes says he's had complaints because he went over an hour. Other people say it should have got on longer. Mm. So, uh, finally, first, first world problems. I'll, I'll offer you mine. My first world problem this week was how to sell uh, an Audi A4 Quattro, um, whatever else it is, uh, with uh, um, high-gloss metallic paint, a black one. Right? So it's, it's a beautiful car, except that it's black, so it keeps getting hit, which is why I want to get rid of it. But <laughs> don't, don't tell anybody on auto car, whatever it is, that... But how do you take a picture of a black, high-gloss car? No matter where you take it from, from whatever light, it's got something reflected on it. And the picture, it, it looks like an old heap of rubbish with all this crap paintwork because there's a reflection of a tree on one side and a street. I, I just don't know how to do it. And um, it, it, it's uh, I, I might be able to help you there, my friend. I've got a, a very gifted um, associate who's um, a photo editor who... Um, uh, uses filters. Filters are mm. going to clean that thing up and make it look almost worth buying. 
pay good money for that because it's a beautiful car and I'm sorry to get rid of it except I'm sick of it being reversed into. But, 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 but you know, it, there are a few things in life that can't be solved with Photoshop. <laughs> First, you've got to learn to use it, though, of course. I, I, I did take it in. You, you, you can see this here. I did take it in. It made, it made me think of it. I took it to the Audi dealership for a 60,000K service, which cost me $1,700. And, and after you... You, you put your credit card across to be whacked. They give you this box of chocolates. This is the most expensive box of chocolates you will ever buy anywhere in the world. Does it, uh, does it taste of, does it, does it, do they taste of Vorsprung durch Technik? I, I can't eat them. I mean, look, $1,700 for four chocolates. That's more than $400 of chocolate. I'm not going to eat them. I've got to put them up in a frame somewhere. <laughs> Tim, Simon, your first world problems. My first world problem is the same as always, is how am I going to lose some weight? But in fact, I, 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 I'm looking towards the, the, the third world, well, is it the third world? The third world for the solution. Because I turned on my TV this morning and saw some, I often watch the TV with the sound down. And I was watching, I think I was watching um, the BBC World or something. And I saw some footage of this rather slim, not bad-looking Asian guy, and then I, I thought, well, why is it? Why are they? Why does this keep guy keep appearing? And and who is it? And then I turned this volume up, and I I discovered it was, it was um, Kim Jong Un. <laughs> and, and, no, have you seen? Have you seen the footage? Is he slimmed down? Well, he's he, he's slim Jim now. He's slim Jim. He's slim Kim. Because he was, uh, he went off the, he went off the air for about two or three months, and as always, everybody said, "Oh, he's probably died." You know, that you know, he's gone. He's sick. He's come back really, really slim. I mean, actually, spectacularly so. It's a real after picture, you know. Jenny Craig, you know, one minute I used to be a fat, a fat dictator. Now I'm a slim dictator. Is this it? Is Jenny Craig sponsoring him? Is this some way of getting foreign currency into North Korea? That'd be great. But then it occurred to me, maybe, well, two things occurred to me. One is that, does he know he's lost weight? Because nobody in Korea, would, North Korea, would dare to say, whoa, you've lost weight, or hey, you're looking better than you used to look, because they'd be shot. So I'm wondering whether he, he actually knows, does he even know he's lost weight? Mm. Secondly, I was wondering whether... Um, <laughs> Whether um, if he's actually dead, and he is dead, and this is a body double, but not a very good one, in the same way as they don't do very good missile doubles, they don't do very good doubles at this stuff. Maybe they've even got the the body double thing really badly done. But 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 no one's sure. He's not so no much a body double as a body half, by the sounds of it. But but think, but there again, again, nobody in North Korea would dare to say, "Is it really you, dear leader?" Nobody would really would dare, would they? Bit of a problem, mate, with um, finding a body double for the only overweight person in North Korea. You know, they're eating bark and twigs. Well, that's it. Yeah, exactly. So you got to like, we need okay, we need a fat bloke. Um, a bit of a shortage there, mate. We're going to go with this guy. He weighs forty kilos, <laughs> and the last thing he ate was a pet. <laughs> the last thing he ate was his cousin. Well, we need the we need the Kim diet in uh, in all the papers. I'll get onto the various people tomorrow morning. Um, my first world problem. Well, where do they start? They're all first world problems, aren't they? Really, when you look at Kabul and then you think, well, by comparison with being being a hostage in Kabul, which is basically every American, 
our problems don't really amount to a great deal. But uh, you know, I've got I've got issues with Bunnings. Um, you know, with, with this, uh, I go there all the time, generally just to walk around and look at things that I don't need. I mean, there's there's I might be at at a pre addiction level with my uh, my Bunnings uh, issues. Uh, we ran a story in the Daily Telegraph a few weeks ago, uh, and, a, and a chap recognised his Bunnings addiction when he bought a um, tree lopping device, some sort of tree pruning or tree lopping machinery, despite not having any trees on his property. At that point, you've got to know you've got a you've got a problem, man. You've got to, you've got to deal with it. You've got to. Talk. But that's a sign yeah. of you know, uh, it's 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 not necessarily something to be ashamed of. It's a sort of a sign of masculinity, and and of the non toxic variety, is that you, you know, you're a bloke if you, you always there's there's probably a, a mathematical formula that says, you go to Bunnings intending to buy X, you will come back with something that's X times so and so i mean the the i once went there trying to get some um some gaffer tape and i came back with a reclining chair for my balcony and that's pretty spectacular you know <laughs> this is what the six-pack police yeah. should be dealing with they should be stopping people doing this, this is a thing. this is a subject um, for a future podcast you talk about going to Bunnings and you come back with mysterious goods that you didn't intend to purchase. About a decade or so ago, I worked out a, 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 a calculation for um, for Australian cities. If, you, if you'd simply leave your house in Sydney for any purpose at all, just maybe just for a walk in Sydney, you will come back $50 lighter. You don't know where the money's gone. But that money will go away. In Melbourne, it's about $25. That money will go. In Adelaide, it's about $10. In Tasmania, Launceston or uh, Hobart, you'll actually come back with more money. You'll actually get a, a slight increase due to some kind of government um, input. And uh, I, think we've, I think we're going to work it out. Uh, Where does Woi Woi fit into this? Woi uh, Woi, uh, you come back with, a, a, you know, uh, a drug, a drug conviction. <laughs> well, look, guys. Um, whatever the limit uh, there is for podcasts, I'm sure we've passed it long ago. So, look. Thanks again. Thanks to Tim. Thanks to Simon. Thanks, of course, to Fred Paul and, and to and to Alec Bennett, our our producer. Big big round of applause for him. And we'll be back again uh, shortly with another um, something. What's we with another. With another name. <laughs> With another name for our podcast. <laughs> thanks, thanks, guys. One, two, three, four, get my shoes and out the door. Five, I'm alive. Six, seven, eight, feeling great. Nine, gonna shine, life is good. I'm doing fine, ten, gonna do it right and do it again, yeah. All the beautiful color, but there's more than just for me, so gonna share it with another. I got two show to give, let out. I want to sing and shout, take a look and see a beautiful morning that turns into a beautiful evening, and together make a beautiful life. And if you wanna see, then come along with me, that's right. And if you want a good tomorrow, it's pretty simple, gotta find a light to follow. And if you do, you have a future real bright, and it's a combination of consistency. Come on and sing, oh, 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 oh. Oh, oh, oh.
words away I gotta dance just a little bit Move to be free Keep my head up, don't forget to be me Like I want a million dollars Like I hit the pay dirt Gonna smile from ear to ear The kind that makes a face hurt And we'll laugh, jump, say loud Not afraid to shout about Being happy, living it out Take a look and see a beautiful morning That turns into a beautiful evening And together make a beautiful life And if you wanna see Then come along with me, that's right And if you want a good tomorrow It's pretty simple, gotta find a life to follow Combination of consistency, come on and say